Okay. Testing, testing. There we go. Let's pray this morning. Well, Father God, we just do come uh, just this glor- great glorious morning of uh, just praise and adoration unto you. Father, we're again uh, just humbled by your great love for us. And even today, Father, as we even contemplate just a glimpse of this true affection that we have and this great privilege to love you, Father, we realize it's from you. And I pray even today that, Father, your time and your word will be uh, just a, really a rich blessing to us. And so we just thank you so much for this great privilege that we have. And I pray your spirit will just lead and guide us through uh, this time and focus on the spiritual privileges that we have through Jesus Christ. And we give all praise and honor and glory unto your Son's name. Amen. Open with me to your Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And we're not going to... I just want you to, to look at it while I just share some things with you. Matthew chapter 27. I want you just... As I share some comments with you, as I want you to just glance at the words starting in verses 45 through 51 and on, just as I go through this, as we just listen to this summary. For it's like one of, as I'm trying to tie through what Mark left off last week with some of the key privileges, this particular passage is so profound in itself from the standpoint of giving you an example of some of the things Mark and I are trying to share with you. In other words, what does it really mean to you? Profound in this, Jesus is being crucified in these verses. He's being crucified. He is nailed to the cross at 12 o'clock at noon on Friday. The area experiences this total eclipse of the sun for three hours. It's in the middle of the day. It's dark. Just the feel of judgment. Three hours later, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Taking it from Psalm 22, verse 1, actually. It's recorded that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. I don't know what. Perhaps in anguish, maybe in pain. He gave up his spirit. He died. And at that very moment, our, our sins are pinned to him. And then, as Matthew records it in verse 51, and this is the profound part, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. As I thought about this priesthood that we have that was so focused last week in this privilege, this is so, so profound. Do you remember the temple, Herod's temple? And it had this inner sanctum, right? The inner sanctum was called the, the Holy of Holies or the most holy place itself. And it symbolized the very presence of the holy God. And the only person that we heard last week that could go into that place was the high priest. He could only enter. And there he would make these, go through these extreme measures of guarding not only his own purity, 
because, as we heard, he himself could be killed. He, did, he went in there once per year for the atonement of Israel's sin. The most holy of holy places was separated from the rest of the temple by what? A very thick, heavy veil. The veil represented this barrier. I love this verse in Isaiah 59. Too, it says, Your sin has made a separation between you and God. That barrier existed between God and sinful man. And it was that veil itself that represented that. And in just in some commentary here, this, the, we've often heard of one of the great Jewish historians was Josephus. Josephus re- records about this veil itself that it was so thick. It was, in fact, it was like multiple layers. Was in mine is not quite four inches. I was, but it's like the palm of a man's hand, almost four inches thick. Four inches thick. It's like a big phone book. Is what we think about like this. And he, Josephus said that it was like 60 feet tall and literally it took like 300 priests to be able to just manage this veil itself. And it was said that a team, he, Josephus writes that a team of horses pulling on each side couldn't even tear it apart. And yet, verse 51, look at it again. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The team of horses that couldn't pull it apart, God did. It was torn from the top from the bottom. What does that indicate to you? Top to the bottom. Access. But God did it. God did it. Man didn't do it. God did it. It does. And it is access. And so the significance of that is a tie-in that we kind of look at. And it's so interesting is, is that as you read for us, so, as we know, some 40 years later, as Jesus predicted, he actually records in Luke 13.35. Let me just, I'll just read that since I have it marked here. Luke 13.35, it reads this way. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent for her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And here it is, verse 35. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was significant because the Romans, we know, that later attacked uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In fact, Hebrews 9 declares that the temple was indicative of the old age itself. Uh, Hebrews 9, 8, and 9. And so the new covenant has arrived, making the old desolate. That profoundness itself in access is that what Mark talked about last week as the priest is that think Think carefully that as the priesthood of a believer itself, the privileges that were immediately accessible at that point. You have access to God in prayer, access to God in confession, sacrifice in the Word. So as we look at this, our objective, that we would comprehend the precious spiritual privileges we have in Christ so that we would grasp, cherish, and savor the multifaceted glory of what it means to be called the children of the living God and therefore be transformed by Him. By taking a passage like Matthew 27, and the profoundness of it is, is for me, it was, it was a picture. And I was able to then take it and comprehend to a greater depth 
the privileges that we have through Jesus Christ. So now we go back to 1 Peter. Back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And in the passages that we've been looking at were 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. The privileges of being a Christian is really what we've been focusing on. We call them the spiritual privileges. Peter, throughout these verses itself, deals with the rewards, the treasures, and the riches that believers receive. He doesn't focus so much on what we had to give up, but he focuses on the privileges that belong to every believer in Jesus Christ. You know, I remember many, many years ago that uh, when I became um, an administrator and I was given a gold card at work. And the gold card was the district credit card. In other words, I had this privilege to be an authority to be able to just go and buy on the company credit card right there. And it was gold and it was the gold card. You have your own gold card. But it gave me privileges, okay? So let's define what privileges are first. What are the privileges? What does it mean to have privileges? Okay? Special rights that someone else may not have, okay? Others. Yeah. Here, if, if, here's some of the, the, the uh, if you were to look it up, either Google it with uh, Expedia, or, not Expedia, but uh, what am I thinking of? The, uh, work, the Wicked, okay? Privilege is a special entitlement granted by another authority, either by birth or a conditional basis. Interesting. Broader sense, privilege can refer to special powers held as a consequence of wealth or of political. Privilege is this sort that can be transmitted by birth into a privileged class, a membership in a particular group, or achieved through individual actions itself. When we talk about spiritual privileges, now take that definition in its practical way and be able to apply it to what we have in Jesus Christ, the special privileges that each of you are given in your gold card, your Jesus gold card, that have. And in these verses that we see here, it lists for us several that we're highlighting just from verses 4 to 10. Christians should respond to these privileges. I think about what I have, and many of you define what, why does that make you feel when you have privileges? Worthy? Special? Honored? Trusted? You feel very important. The access that we have through Christ, these privileges certainly highlight for us what we have. And as we've been going through this the last couple of weeks, Mark started off with our coming to Christ in verses 4, our union with Christ, verses 5, and our access to God. Today, I'm going to be focusing on our security in Christ, our affection for Christ, our election by Christ, and our dominion with Christ. And then I'll finish it up next week with separation, possession, illumination, passion, and proclamation. As we look at these verses, what's so interesting to me is is that in the passages that we're looking at is that there are two things that seem to jump out from me as I look at these and I map out these verses. The first thing that came to to me was is that there was a lot of rocks and stones in these verses, 
right? And I, you know, I just highlighted a few of those as you go through. It started off, we're marking the, in verse 4 with living stone. Again, it shows up in verse 5, living stone. We have, behold, the Zion, a choice stone, a cornerstone. Another stone back in verse 7, a cornerstone again, the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The other thing that stood out for me in these verses is that Peter uses a lot of Old Testament references. And that always intrigues me. But again, as it relates to the specific audience that he has there, it's very purposeful in what we're doing. So as we go through these things, is that as we look at an overview of First Peter, there are three Old Testament passages that seem to be um, employed in these as it relates specifically to the stone, the stone that's referenced throughout. And that would be Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118:22, and Isaiah 8, 14. And I want to go back to these verses today in more in-depth to understand not only the context of that, but also to, to see for the significance of that um, as it relates to not only his audience, but for us as well. And then finally, we will then conclude today with this, again, speaking to this great privilege of election that we have even as... It focuses on the uniqueness of us being referred to as royal priests. So just by a quick review of where highlighting some of the summary things that Mark had covered in coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are coming to Christ, are coming to him as to a living stone rejected by him in a choice and precious. The coming to him, the intimacy, the invitation that we have, that relationship was a focus. Our union with Christ, you as living stones, that immediately is that we have Christ because of his resurrection and the uniqueness of that is alive. And we are alive in Christ. And then our access as being built up as a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer up our spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are built up as a spiritual temple, living stones to make up the church. And we're going to talk more about that today because I'm going to point to verse 5 as being a key verse for us in, as we continue on in the, in the verses that follow in 6 to 10 uh, specifically. So you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God, through Jesus Christ. He then says, therefore. The therefore is really for the purpose of trying for them to be able to connect to what he just did. In other words, he is saying that as you as the church, you as the living stones are being built up as a spiritual house with these same spiritual privileges of that of the priest. In fact, he is saying here that it is a holy priesthood and then the call to offer up sacrifices to Jesus Christ. Our security in Christ. One of our, uh, as we transition this, as believers, we are have the confident conviction that we are secure in Jesus Christ forever. Let's go through the verse, chapter 2, verse 6. Coming to him as to a living stone, in verse 4. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up as, spiritual, as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore... Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture. Behold, 
I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will not be will by no means be put to shame. NASB would be for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a precious stone, a, pr a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. What is the key? Why did P Peter use this phrase, do you think, that this is contained in Scripture? Just some thoughts. Okay? Any other thoughts on that? There's something unique about this, that it is contained. The opposite of this that you see more commonly is that it is written. Right? What do you think is the difference between that it is written and it is contained and this is contained in Scripture? It's the very thing that we do in teaching, isn't it? It's the very thing, because what we do is that you're taking Scripture and you're taking truth and you're bringing it together for the purpose of that teaching. And so the difference is, is when it says it is written, it is a direct quote. This is not a direct quote. In fact, that's why I want to go back to these passages, because you see what is not quoted, what's left off, and how do these are actually tied together. But as believers itself... It says, we, are con we have a confident conviction that we are secure in Jesus Christ. These verses, like Kim said, it's the therefore, it's so that we can tie it to there, and it says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. What is the key idea in that verse, do you think? Yes, for us. Yes, I agree. Others. Other thoughts on this. What, is, what stands out? In other words, this from the standpoint of what is the key part of this verse. As it relates specifically to this privilege of security. Our security in Christ. Yeah, there, there's not a, this is not a trick question. They're, they're all, these are all parts of it that certainly bring it, the truth forward in there. And what Peter's use of the Old Testament refers to these truths for the purpose of teaching regarding Christ. And I'm going to also point to something that's very, very uh, significant about as far as the key part of this verse, it's this aspect of not being disappointed. And I want to talk in great length about that, or, not, or your version may say that there is no shame, not to be shamed in that. So there is an aspect of, of security, which I'll translate to confidence that you have in Christ. And therefore, it's the opposite of disappointment, which we'll look at. Let me give you the go with me now to uh, the first passage that is Isaiah 28:16. Let's let's take a look at this. He is quoting Peter's use, his first reference of the Old Testament that is affirming his readers but affirming us as well to the security that we have as believers in Christ is taken from Isaiah 28:16 in which he says, "Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone." And so, according to Peter, the stone of Isaiah 28.16 is Christ. It's the Messiah. It's Christ. And in 1 Peter 2.4, he speaks of Christ as a living stone. Now, let's read that Isaiah 28.16 if someone is there. Someone read that. Within, with, right, when that verse that Cheryl read there in the middle there, look Go all the way to like the beginning of that, and you can see like if you have a header or something. What's the context of what's happening? Because that's just sort of just is like right in the middle of that section of Isaiah. He is in that. If you were to go back and read it, what's happening? Isaiah is actually he's proclaiming a message of judgment on Israel 
for their disobedience and their disbelief or unbelief and about the nation of Assyria is going to be used to, by God to punish them. So, so, like right in the middle of that chapter on judgment comes this prophetic statement that is quoted so many places in Scripture. And the truth, the truth of Isaiah 28.16 respecting Christ is also affirmed by Paul. In fact, in Paul, in verse chapter 9 of 33, he quotes it exactly. It was a familiar, it was a, a very, very important Old Testament text, especially to those writers of the New Testament. And it spoke, as Mark said, very specifically of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ of God. And in fact, what it says is that when he would come, he would be the cornerstone of the new temple of God. So, at the beginning of that reference, though, in the middle of Isaiah 28, is this word, behold. What is God calling our attention to in that, by that word? Right. right. It, is, it, is, it is, exactly, it is this focused attention and undivided. That, those words there is for us too. These are these wake-ups. This is this application when we, when we look at Scripture. Is that, what is that? He goes on in that. He says, what does, he says in there that, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. What does Zion refer to? What do you know about Zion? Right. Actually, it refers specifically to Jerusalem. And figuratively, Mount Zion represents that as we know in the New Testament, as the new covenant of grace. And a great passage to look at and study is in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. It takes that whole section, and what it does within that passage is that it really contrasts Mount Sinai representing the old covenant of the law itself. And so, as opposed to, in this case, Mount Zion, which is the new covenant, new covenant of grace. And so, Zion here refers to Jerusalem. And again, very prophetically, is that it, it relates specifically to Jerusalem at that time for Israel. Mm. The, the, the drill down on these, what's so significant about it, again, is that as we peel this back some more, it's interesting to me is that for his readers themselves, which we have both Jews and Gentiles, the significance of this as it relates to, again, this new covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. I mean, it is so clear, and yet for them to be able to have it nail and, and connect at home, he's using the Old Testament. Taking back to these very, very key verses. And so Zion refers to Jerusalem, this new covenant of grace. In 1 Peter 2.6, he says that this stone is a choice stone. There it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. He says that this stone is a choice stone. It means it's elect. It means it's chosen by God. Both Isaiah's and Peter's analogy of the stone it would have, if you were a Jewish reader, you would begin thinking about something very clear. Okay, we don't necessarily look at it a certain way, but when there is a, a when it, the reader says sees choice stone, what does that mean to you, Connie? What does it mean to you, a choice stone? Okay, a specially picked out stone, something that is unique in itself, okay? Uh, go with me for a second so we can get the background, because I think it's very interesting, is go back to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6. 
First Kings chapter six. You know, someone could just read verse seven out loud. It's a really interesting verse. Tell me what it means to you. What's happening there? It's interesting. The temple stones were prepared before they even came to the site. They were all planned out and they were prepared elsewhere at the shop, at the quarry itself. And so they were shaped, they were cut at the, at the stone quarry in accordance with the very, very specific. It's the blueprint that was given to these cutters. They were marked, each had a number, and you could just see it. And so they were, they were brought to there. Why, as I was reading some of them, they would just be so that there was no construction noises that were going on. There's no hammering and things. It was there. It was the Lord's temple. Interesting. So it was prepared beforehand. Now, just take, for, take your head with that knowledge and now move that to Christ. Just as you get to this, you start talking about master builder and all this preparation and everything else. It's all starting to fall into place and into alignment into precision. Based on that, that background in 1 Kings 6, how does, just as a question here for just some comments, how does the building of Solomon's temple, as we've just read there, going back there, how does that illustrate the way in which God's New Testament temple, the church, is built? Kind of what Marcus talked about last week with living stones itself. What are some comments? How does that illustrate the way God is building his church? How does that relate to you? Well, you know what? I, I'll just ask Mick and Betty. You know, why are you here? Look, God has brought, brought them here in a short time, and now they have to go because they are so active in ministry. There they go. I, that, that's, a, that's an example, isn't it, though? Isn't that an example of how God is building His church with His living stones? But they were prepared before. That's what's pretty awesome about it. It's awesome. Well, continuing with this, not only is Christ an elect stone, he is also precious. He's a precious corner stone. Why? Let's, what would be some reasons why Christ can be called a precious cornerstone? I'm going to just throw out three for discussion and thoughts and comment, and then you can add to it. Why is Christ called a precious cornerstone? First one. The stone is, you would agree, Christ is without equal. Without equal. It means highly regarded. It means valuable. It means costly. It means irreplaceable. Not like us. <laughs> Christ is without equal. And therefore, it's appropriate to be called a precious cornerstone. The stone is critically important. The stone is critically. In fact, as you know this already, is that that precious cornerstone is the most important stone in any building. The time of, of, of Peter, even his writing, it was more critical, even that much more critical. It's set, as we know about the cornerstone. What does it, it do? It sets, I, I heard really loud and clear from Cheryl, you nailed it is that it sets the direction, it sets the angles, I heard. Um, everything, the walls, everything in that itself, both directions, vertically, horizontally, everything is tied symmetrically to that one cornerstone. It is critically 
important. You know, um, I'm not a best tradesperson, and I've kind of done a few things where I didn't set the right starting point about things, and I've got several, so I can't point to one. I had several examples, and you know, it. The further you get into it, the worse it got, until you had to start over the building completely or whatever I was doing. Um, if I would have just understood this, the significance of critically getting that first set point done right in measurement, and everything else would have fallen into place. But you can take that and apply it to your own situations when we get to be a little bit hasty. And that word hasty is, we get kind of quick, I'm going to tie that word into the word disappointment. Because when we have a confidence, and it's almost like this call, he says, don't be in a hurry. It's almost the context of that word is just slow it down. And there's a confidence that we can have that it's going to be perfect. And that's the last one. The stone is indeed perfect. To build a temple we know as the church, it's necessary for the cornerstone to be perfect. It was perfect. It was elect. It was prepared in advance. And it was Jesus Christ. And it sets all of the angles, all of God's spiritual angles are perfectly aligned household of God. And so as we look at that, I'm going to tie it back to the fact that this master builder, in fact, chose that stone, prepared that stone. God prepared Jesus for that. And so that gives us the greatest security that we have. And a couple of verses that just step, step out. Hebrews 4.15 and Hebrews 7.26 that you can look at, but I'll read them here. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is a precious cornerstone because he... We have Jesus Christ as that high priest who was without sin and yet and yet, could sympathize specifically with our own weaknesses. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, perfect, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Well, as not only, but for the cornerstone itself, it was perfectly laid by the Father. And so God essentially is, was this master builder um, of everything. And what we see within this master builder to bring Christ forth into history, it's the, the Galatians 4 passage that at, the, what, at the, the fullness of time, I think was the word I'm looking for, which was the perfect time that God brought forth this into history to redeem people for himself. So now, we as living stones are aligned. We've got this. And so as living stones, we must stay in alignment with the cornerstone. So taking the applications, the, the, the responses that you have there, there are three things. We are living stones. We need to be aligned with that cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, in our own lives as an application. It is relevant for two things. The first one is relevant for our doctrine. We must our, what we believe must line up exactly with Him. And that's, we have it in Scripture. And secondly, that it's relevant for our duty. In other words, our lives must be lined up with him. And so when you have this picture of Jesus as this precious cornerstone, that being the foundation of your life as a believer, 
the great privilege that we have to now be, because of that, to be in alignment with that. And now I'll go back to the, the, uh, the assessment sheet that we had. This is where you, you start to see where you start to drift off a little bit in your own life. And this is where we have to get back in in line. And praise God for His Word, the Holy Spirit, that brings us back into alignment um, in both areas, in doctrine, but also in our duty or living out. Now, just take for a second, if you look, when we, we see this, now it starts to make sense, if that's the case, back when he, in First Peter, if you, just looking at the verses that preceded these things. If, if Christ is the cornerstone, and we are, to his readers, lining up their doctrine, lining up their lives with him, it makes sense then, as we saw back in chapter 1, verses like 13 and 15, girding up your loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that he brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he has called you, be holy, for he was holy. All your conduct. It's verses um, 17. If you are calling the Father, your partial judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. So we can see this alignment of doctrine as well as the conduct itself or the duty of living our lives for Christ. I don't know if you thought about this much. Isn't it somewhat ironic to have all of this, this uh, discussion about Peter and being so strong and making all of these assertions and statements that it was going back that Peter, if I go back all the way to Matthew, it wasn't it Jesus calling Peter that upon this rock I would build my church? It's ironic that Peter himself is now asserting this very, very fact itself. I will also say to you, Peter, Matthew 16, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not over power it. Yeah. I just want to read 2.44. Peter's final affirmation in verse 6 of First uh, Peter 2 is that he who believes in him, it says, shall not be disappointed. Because of the perfection of God's chosen cornerstone, Jesus Christ, one of the greatest privileges as Christians to have is that you will never be disappointed in him. Never be disappointed in him. So this key idea in verse 6 is that we will not be disappointed. Now, what connotations does that word disappointed carry? Things that just sort of examples. You don't have a whatever you want to share. Happened that way. So. Okay. And so what you'd hoped for didn't happen. Okay. Others. Other thoughts. We, and I like I like both of these because that's really hits on that is the disappointment that I'm going to set expectation or have to have my confidence and somehow be misplaced because of something I would set. Your point, George, I think is excellent. Is that we as individuals, as as man, we're going to fail. We're going to disappoint. Jesus will never disappoint. An animal. What's happening to these first century Christians right here? <laughs> They're being persecuted. They're, they're suffering under persecution for their faith. And that in itself is that Peter is really making this as a changed focus for them because they, they set expectation and it's not 
It's not working within themselves. And so uh, th this was a very sobering thought. And when you keep this in the context here, is that here they were under intense persecution. And so sometimes we can't connect to that. Okay? Because when I would look at the connotations of what does it disappointment carry to you, it would be like, you know, boy, I didn't get that job I had applied for, you know. Or, uh, boy, you know, I was uh, sort of hoping that, uh, you know, I could take advantage of the timing of something to get a better price on something. I'm just disappointed. Take that context of disappointment and apply it to these Christians here. It's significant. In, in a, within this, we see, a, we see a significant contrast in him. And what I'm saying is, is that we have to have that same transformation in, on, in our, the context for us as an application standpoint. It needs to be the same. And so therefore, the stone is trustworthy. The stone is trustworthy. We will never disappoint. Isaiah 50, verse 7 says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have I set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Within that, again, this, this context that we see here, the confidence that one has who believes in the true God. It is like flint. It's unwavering. I've set my face to doing this. I, I, I love uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. It was a turning point in his, his ministry. He takes it right to the cross. It is at that point, from everything that on at that point, it's nothing will dissuade him or challenge, change that course of action. He set his face. Blint. God helps me. It's just that sense of despise that happening back to me. Those backs where my eyes are filled. What am I disappointed? You know what I mean? It's like just a tool to value it. What am I disappointed? God's word says to keep my God's word tells me that I still feel time. You know, what is that in? And then are my eyes thick? <laughs> but it's like the little subtle no line bifocal that, you know, I can just like this, adjust my head a little bit and it comes into focus and in alignment. And that really is that with with God, his word. It's the cornerstone. And even as you just, more different just a couple of other supporting ones on that to those same points in Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. And again, within the context of this, you can see how, again, this is this, this encouragement within the context of this word of disappointment. You will not be ashamed itself is with what is the humiliation that they may be feeling or the disgrace itself. Romans 8.31, this whole passage, actually start reading in verse 28 of Romans, causing all things to work together for good, all the way to 39, actually, keep going in here. Just one in there, if God is for us, who, can, who is against us? What God promised in Isaiah 28.16 was that the stone was tested, it was costly cornerstone, and it was firmly placed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed literally means, in the Hebrew, this is where it comes, it literally means he who believes in it will not be in a hurry. In other words, you won't be in a hurry to run for fear. So it is this, I like this because it's sort of, just settle down. Settle down into the security and the foundation of Jesus Christ and His Word. No reason to be confused. No reason to be ashamed. No reason to be disappointed. Jesus is trustworthy. He is the object 
He is the object of our trust. Never fail. In verses 7 and 8, Peter now turns our attention in spiritual privileges to our affection for Christ. In verses 7 and 8, reading on. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. This precious value, then, is for you to believe not only for those who believe, but also for those who disbelieve this value. The stone which the builders rejected. There's a contrast that we see in this verse here. Those that are rejecting it, obviously, would be the non-believers, and then those who believe. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, I love this quote. If I wrote this down here, from this is from, many of us have read, if you read anything from Jonathan Edwards, uh, he was an 18th century uh, theologian. He said, the greater the view and sense that one has of the infinite excellence and glory of God in Christ and how, of how boundless is the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ to sinners, the greater will be the astonishment one feels as he realizes how little he knows of such love to, to such a God into such a glorious Redeemer. Precious value of Christ as the cornerstone. It belongs to those who believe. Our love for Christ is a privilege of believers. Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God is poured out where? In our hearts. Within our hearts. Our love for Christ is a privilege of believers. The second, our love for Christ is a test of faith. John 8, 42, if God were 